Sometimes we don't have all the answers. All we can do is ask the questions. But this will be unfamiliar, uncomfortable even for many of us, because the world asks us again and again to be sure, to know, to have a firm opinion, to state our case and aggressively sometimes defend it. But what if we started to look through the layers of thought we've always been exposed to, though, and seek out different stories? It will certainly take us into unexpected places, moving away from the firm ground of accepted facts into something more uncertain could also feel disorientating. But the shifting mercurial landscape of questioning is one of the most vital places we must go to, because it's here in this elemental space that we will learn and evolve, open ourselves up to being guided towards new lights, and we will not be alone there. More and more of us are asking questions right now, sick of the old ways, wondering, is there a different path? And we can find solace, inspiration in the people who are on this journey with us. Some you will know in real life, their friends, their people you meet, who share your worldview. Others, however, will not be found in your immediate surroundings, but they may leap off the page or a podcast or wherever you find inspiration to become a much-valued companion. Dr. Sharon Blackie is one to me. A few friends recommended her book, If Women Rose Rooted, and it was one of those that sat on the pile for a bit. But then I opened it, and within just a few pages, Sharon's words had deeply connected with me. I've since gone on to find solace, inspiration, and wisdom again and again in her pages. Sharon is an award-winning writer and psychologist. She's authored five books of fiction and non-fiction. She lectures and workshops. She's lived everywhere, from the heart of corporate America to the wilds of the Outer Hebrides. But at the heart of her work lies a call for women to reconnect with our ancient knowledge and wisdom. We've been severed from our core truths by modern society. But we can reclaim them by looking backwards, not forwards, reconnecting to the ancient indigenous truths we've been long severed from. It's deeply thought-provoking, and Sharon is an insightful and wise companion to me in many ways. There are a few other people I've so much looked forward to asking questions of. I'm Mary Portis, and this is Beautiful Misfits. Welcome, Dr Sharon Blackie. Thank you, Mary. I'm delighted to be here. Yes. First of all, it's just lovely seeing you in person because I've been reading your book. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever had such a dog-eared book by my bedside. And if I, and it happens to women at our age, I'm sure you talk about in your other book, Haggitude. But when I wake at that sort of 3 a.m. time, I pick it up and then I go, why am I doing this? Because then I search for the pen and I'm marking it all the time because so much just spoke to me. But I, I won't get onto that just yet. What I want to share is a bit of your personal story first. And I want to start with the turning point in your life, which you write in 1999, I was 38 years old, living in America, working again in a corporate job and my second major midlife crisis. I needed to finally break out of the corporate world that I'd reverted to after a messy and expensive divorce. But an impoverished and challenging childhood had made me always fearful and far too hung up on security. One day, shortly after J.F. Kennedy Jr. had died piloting his small airplane, I took it into my head that I needed to learn to fly. <laughs> OK, there's a lot to unpack. I, mean, I could go on for ages on this, but talk to me about that time, would you? I felt that 
And I had felt for many, many years that I really needed to break out of corporate life because it was not me at all. There was nothing of me in it, for it. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I should be doing something else. I wasn't entirely sure what. But because I had grown up in a very impoverished environment, I feared not having, for example, a house of my own. You know, I just feared that all of that would be taken away again. And I couldn't quite seem to find a way to make the break. And I kept going back. And I really began to feel at that point in my life that I would never learn to live if I didn't stare that fear and anxiety in the face and actually confront death because that was something that I had been very afraid of too. Every time I you know, went in a plane, I expected to die. And I really did think that it needed something that dramatic. And it sounds crazy to say, well, you know, one of the most prominent people in America died in a plane crash and so you learn to fly but it just it just wouldn't go away I just had it in my head all the time you know I'd get in the car and songs would play I believe I can fly and all of that kind of thing I believe I can fly exactly it's dire (laughs) and so I did and uh, every time I got into that plane I was staring death in the face and that ability to go on any way, which I didn't think I had in me. You know, I thought at every stage that I would fail, but that ability to stare death in the face and say, no, this is actually how you learn to live by staring death in the face, changed everything. Oh, God, right. So that's a real epiphany, though, because when I read that, I didn't realise that so much because that's what the great teachers tell us, isn't it? You know, death is with you every day. Face it. Do not be fearful. You know, I don't know that I would have put it quite so eloquently maybe at the time no. that that's what I was doing, but I did know that there was that was very much a part of it, yes. And it's very interesting that that is a lesson I seem to have to learn quite often because I'm sure we'll come to that, but more recently I had another brush with death when I was um, diagnosed in the middle of lockdown with a very aggressive form of lymphoma and that was at a point where I was really not necessarily taking my own medicine, you know. I pushed through menopause and I went on doing, doing, doing more and more like I'd always done and that's not the time of life for that kind of thing and it really took, again, that meeting with death and this time I think in a curious kind of way learning to actually befriend death Mm. to push me through yet another looming crisis perhaps mm. it comes time and time again doesn't it mm. these messages and we so suppress so many of them there's so much that we could talk about i just want to start though with this corporate job because i suppose i want people to understand the change of world that you came from tell me about that how did you end up in a corporate job which in a tobacco company and then mm. we'll get on to where you are now and, and what you've written well I was a neuroscientist so I'd done a PhD I'd done a postdoc very prestigious postdocs you know lots of um, publications in scientific journals and that was what I thought I wanted to do for the rest of my life but it comes back to this security thing again you could not get tenure in UK universities at the time so everybody was like lurching from one year research grants to maybe three-year research grants. You could hardly pay for a flat or a house in London. You couldn't get a mortgage because you had no stability. And it was that old thing again that I started to get scared that I would never, ever feel safe. And so I decided I'd had enough of that. That wasn't the only reason why I left academia. I thought it was just, you know, way too bureaucratic and I didn't much like the strictures and the ways of working So I thought, oh, I'll go and work for a pharmaceutical company because pharmacology was part of the neuroscience that I was doing. And then I decided I didn't like that idea. And then I was basically offered a job helping a tobacco company 
fund external scientific research into fields that I was quite interested in, like, you know, nicotine and addiction and so on. And I thought, why not just, you know, wanting for once in my life to have a stable job? It is this real facing of fear because there is no answer. But we want security. It's like the piece that I talked about. The we want the answers to know that it's going to be OK. But actually, the answer is there is no answer, isn't it? I think so. I think a lot of the time it's trust in your own gift, I suppose, the gift that you bring to the world, which I think everybody does have a particular gift to bring to the world. And we're not taught to see ourselves and our lives in that way. We're taught to see our lives in terms of production. And I think for a lot of people, it is a lack of imagination. I don't mean that in a negative way, but they haven't been taught how to imagine another way of being. And so I think it's not just a financial fear. It wasn't just a financial fear for me. It's just like, well, if I, if I stop being this person, I don't know what I'm going to be. And that's quite frightening for people because, again, we're taught that that is the only way to be, that you have to be in this machine that produces and produces and grows and grows. And look where that's got us. Mm. But I suppose, how do we take that time? Because this is the thing. I mean, we're sitting here as women now in our 60s, right? And I've only just come into this sphere in the last 10 years, you know. How do we take the time to know that and connect when you're a young woman? That's the thing, isn't it? Knowing who am I? Is there anything that you would be saying to a young woman today? I'm going to get onto the back of your book of Women Rosary because I think some of your questions were just wonderful that they need to ask themselves. Is there any shortcut to this? Or is there any thought process that they could put at the centre of their world each day when they get up? I suppose what I would say is to really think very carefully about the stories that you're being told about how the world is. Yeah. And the cultural mythology, as I call it. So the cultural mythology is that more is good. Yeah. The, the myth of progress, the myth of more, if you like. We have to keep growing. We have to keep yep. producing. Every generation must have more than the previous generation. We must all have bigger houses than our parents and so on and so mm -hmm. on. Then we have the myth of individuality, you know, the heroic, if you like, that we must be special. Mm -hmm. We must be more special than everybody else. And with these are presented to us as the way that the world is not as myths that we choose to live by. So I would say... When you use the word myths, let me just okay. explain this. Or stories. Can we put myths as stories? Can we say these are the stories that we've been sold by the mm -hmm. world? Because sometimes when I hear the word myth, it becomes something that's not part of my world. Right. Do, do you see what I'm saying? I do. I suppose I use myth in the sense that a myth is something that tells you how the world is. Okay. Generally speaking, you know, in, in so kind of proper mythology. So it's a story mm. about how the world is. So yes, we can use stories. So the modern um, myths is the society that we're living under today that we have been living under for thousands and thousands of years? Well, actually, we have only been living this way, actually, for a very small number of hundreds of years. Yeah. And before that, I think life was very different. And so what I always encourage people to do is to look back to the old stories, not because we need to turn the clock back, because, of course, those stories were for different people in different ages. Of course. We need to find ways of reimagining and making them relevant to, to the world today. But they do show us that once upon a time, we lived by a different set of stories or myths. We lived by a different set of values. And so our oldest folklore, for example, even fairy tales, certainly the stories that would be considered to be our mythology, show us a world where community is very much more important, where you are encouraged to live in balance and harmony with the natural world and never take too much because if you take more than you should, there are serious consequences. And I do love a good consequence in a story. And so it's really a question of 
don't just assume this is the way the world must be, like the government telling you that the economy must grow is a very silly recent example. Why? Why? Why must it? I'm going to give a quote for your book. Your first line is, how did we end up in such a mess? In fact, I'm going to read the mess that you talk about beforehand. The parallels are clear in our culture, which has for centuries suppressed those qualities, dreaming, creativity, openness, nurturing community, which are perceived to be feminine. Much of the unique wisdom that women hold has been eradicated or driven underground, out of sight, away from the dangerous, damning eyes of men. It's no accident that this systematic suppression of the feminine has been accompanied down the centuries not only by the devaluation of all that is wild and instinctual in our natures, but by the purposeful destruction of our natural ecosystems. We long ago turned our backs on the planet which gives us life. How did we end up in such a mess? This state of affairs, you say, has its roots in the deeply dualistic worldview which emerged out of Western society over the last 2,000 years. We've come to believe that we are separate from nature and more than this, that we are somehow above it. Often it's something to be feared as anything which cannot entirely be controlled is to be feared. In the Western philosophical tradition, since Plato and before, reason and intellect, the unique and privileged domain of humans superior to everything else in the world, everything which is physical, emotional, instinctual and wild. And in this tradition, women are linked to those inferior qualities of nature, just as men are associated with the superior qualities of reason and intellect. And so it follows that if men are superior to nature, they must also be superior to women. And that's why we're in the state we're in. I think so, yes. Not just women, but the world. And I do see the fates of both as absolutely entwined. And it happens all the way through the past 2,000 years. If you look at most of the monotheistic, patriarchal world religions, the big ones, they also have this focus on transcendence. You know, that we have to transcend this world in order to reach heaven. The Gnostic sects, for example, very much had that particular perspective that the physical actually was evil and must be risen above. And as soon as you start getting 2,000 years of attitudes like that, and probably a few more dating back, back in the day, then untold damage is done and it will take a while to unravel that but not too much of a while because I think when I have spoken to women about the old stories pre-Christian stories which linger today there is a sense of recognition and a sense of oh yes it's so simple isn't it it is so simple isn't it it is and it's just a question of recognizing that we choose the stories we live by Mm -hmm. I think on an individual level we can believe this and know this and make change happen on a level of, you know, the structures that govern society, politics being one, the mess that we're seeing at the moment of how they're getting that so wrong. The other I look at where my journey's taking me is to taking this into business and say, look at the world in a different way. Let's do this differently. And taking the same tenets that you talk about, this doesn't need to be about growth. This doesn't need to be about more. It needs to be about enough. And creating social progress, businesses that give back to society. And as you say, care for community. Indeed. Otherwise, I think we're going to see more happening of the kind of thing that we saw happening during lockdown, where when people have the opportunity to stop, uh, whether it's a good opportunity or not, when they stop and they begin to actually interrogate the ways that they're living, 
They find that they don't like it. And so I think if business doesn't change, it will find itself dying because nobody wants to be in it yeah. apart from anything else. Yeah. I want to take you back to your childhood. I see you were an Irish Catholic like me. Poor us, right? No, I wasn't oh, an Irish weren't. Catholic, actually. No, there, oh. there was Irish in the, in the um, <laughs> there was Irish in the family and I was raised oh, by an Irishman. <laughs> I did miss that bullet, yeah. One of one of the very few that I missed. <laughs> I, say. I had the alcoholic mother and the violent father, but I didn't have the Irish Catholic. Yeah, no, I, I didn't have the alcoholisms or the violence, actually. Because you talk about being impoverished. So can you just tell me a little bit about it, what it was like? What was impoverished? Yeah, well, I grew up in the in the northeast. Actually, I was born in Hartlepool for my sins. Somebody has to be. A beautiful area of the world around it. But Hartlepool at the time, in the very early 60s, was extremely deprived and quite a difficult place to be in. My father was from Edinburgh. You know, my mother had grown up in a council estate, a post-war council estate. And there just wasn't very much money. All through my childhood, there was just never very much money. And when my mother divorced my father because of his violence and took to drink, there was even less money because there wasn't a father and there was a lot of money being spent on alcohol. So it always felt a little bit shaky. And one of the things actually I think that I write about in my new book, Hagitude, was the old women of my childhood, the kind of matriarchs of the Northeast, were fearsome beings. You know, they were proper hags and they had a kind of moral authority that has stayed with me as a kind of image for a long time. So on the surface, you know, women back in the day didn't go into pubs. I mean, you could—you were a woman, you didn't go into a man's world. And yet the men might have brought home the money in those days, but the women were the ones who could flay the skin off you, you know, if you didn't um, close your blouse properly or something, or, you know, did something else that was seen to be morally contemptible. And just that sense that they had agency and they had power, they weren't always nice, really made me believe, I think actually from a very early age, that women could do stuff. And my mother, for all of her many flaws, brought me up. She went out, she got a job, she got a, you know, she tried to get good jobs. And there was a strength in her that, again, has stayed with me. Tell me about the word hag, the history of the word hag wasn't a derogatory word. Well, I think it kind of was in the sense that it was always associated with a character of the witch. And back in the day, the definition of a witch was someone who used magic for malevolent means, where it's come to mean something different today, but that's what it was then. But so in some context, in the Anglo-Saxon context, it would have been quite negative. But if you look at the stories in European folklore where women are called hags. They tend to stretch from midlife through to quite old age. So they're women kind of in their prime. They're not young women. And they are women who stand outside the system. They are women who are not defined by their relationships to their husband, to their kids, to anybody else. They are wholly sufficient unto themselves. The nature of a hag is the essence of the woman who bears that label. They are absolutely themselves. They come roaring out of the forests, telling the men all of the ways in which they've completely messed everything up. You know, And so that whole idea of a woman who stands outside the system and calls the system out means that inevitably it will become a derogatory term. Right. Old women are to be feared. They're yes. dangerous. They might say things that you don't find comfortable and who can stop them, you know? And that older women thing has gone right into society today that actually today it's even worse. It's old women are actually irrelevant. Yes, it's bad enough for women in general, mm. but for old women you, you are required to be invisible. Mm. And back in the day they were not. In mm. our old stories they were not. Women wove the world into being. Mm. Women created and shaped the land in in the Scottish and Irish Gaelic traditions, you know, 
Would you take me back to that? Because this is where so much of your inspiration has come, isn't it? From understanding and going back to those traditions and myths. Can you just take it back and give me, so that anybody listening to this, what I really want to understand is the history of how women effectively have been sidelined in society. Because your calling today would be to bring back the divine feminine, the energy that women gave in society that made a more balanced society. Your goal, I believe, and you can articulate this much better than me, Sharon, your words are brilliant, but is to bring that back into society to make a fairer and a more beautiful way that we can live. Yes, it would be to bring back those feminine qualities which have been sidelined and those feminine qualities include a sense of harmony yes. with the natural yes. world and an underlying knowledge that I do think women have of balance. We understand when enough is enough. And so if you go back you know, to Greek mythology, we have the three fates who were old women, not the beautiful young women that the male artists drew, but in the old texts, they were old women. And they literally wove the world into being. They kept it in balance. It wasn't that they handed out destinies to men, you know. It was that if somebody took more than they should or something that they shouldn't, like a son taking his mother, to use the, the classical example, then the world was out of sync and something had to happen for it to be put back in balance. So they literally held the balance of the cosmos in their hands. The Furies were the Avengers. If somebody either killed a parent or disrespected a grandparent or whatever, then they would set them tasks to atone for that because if they didn't atone, the world was out of balance because wrong had been done. So women had this wonderful moral authority even back in Greek times and these women were before the Olympian deities that we know much more commonly who were remarkably patriarchal. Look at Zeus, for heaven's sake, you know, raping and pillaging and plundering all over the place. And we find that also in our own native traditions. So, as I said, in the Scottish, Gaelic and Irish traditions, there is an old woman called the Caliach, which literally means old woman. This and is your favourite, isn't it? I just adore that old woman because she's Explain she's about fierce. Her. Yeah, so she is the one who creates and shapes the land. And in Scotland, there are stories where she carries rocks around in her apron and she, you know, trips over and the rocks spill out and, oh, look, there's a mountain range all of a sudden. And um, she also keeps the natural world in balance. So there are other stories where she will not allow hunters to take hinds, you know, pregnant female deer, while they're carrying and if the hunter agrees not to take her hind, she'll allow him a really good stag at the right time of year. So there's all this sense of not just literally bringing the land into being, keeping the kind of balance and harmony of the universe, but keeping the balance and harmony between people and the natural world. It was all women. And, and how did that get lost so that now we have some bearded old guy up in the sky, you know, telling us that the physical world is irrelevant and we must all transcend it and go to some place called heaven? Our father, everything is based mm. around a male, and I want to get on to how you started your search for wisdom. But what was interesting for me was that you didn't go searching the Eastern philosophies, which so many people, you, you, Sharon's raising her eyes on this one. But, <laughs> Sorry. Um, but so many people do, you know, whether it's Buddhism or whether it's the Tantric or the Vedas, the Indian, because we don't connect, you know, what is our indigenous cultures from the mythic imagination of our lands. But what I found was that actually all of those Eastern, all headed by men still, all of them. Mm. 
And yet you've taken this completely into a place. That's what I found so inspiring and so wonderful, that you explored a whole mythology that was connected to our land. Can you explain that and, and how you found that? And it was your sense of self being rooted in place as well, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. So I was living in America when I kind of really started to think about all of this kind of stuff. And I just recognised that for most of my life, I hadn't actually felt very rooted anywhere. But I particularly wasn't rooted in America. It was not my place. I literally felt as if my feet had no, they weren't connecting properly with the land, you know, as if I was slipping and sliding about. And I started to read quite a lot of Native American writers who clearly, you know, wrote very, very differently about the association between their spiritual lives, I guess, and the land and how deeply they were entwined with their places and how the stories that came out of their lands and out of their places gave them some proper grounding. And I thought, well, gosh, I've never I've never heard of anything like that in my part of the world. You know, I knew all about fairy tales and stories for children. And a little Irish leprechaun, And please, all of yeah. that kind of malarkey, <laughs> yeah. And so I went back and I thought, well, I wonder actually... If there weren't stories that also were cosmologies, but, you know, were just presented to us as fairy tales and stories for children. And indeed they were. And women were at the centre of them, but not just women at the centre of them. Women embedded in the land were at the centre of them. And that sense of grounding is what I think is missing from all of the philosophies and religions that you're talking about. It's not just the monotheistic religions. It is a lot of the Eastern religions as well have become very disembodied and very detached from the land. And so nobody cares about the land who employs these religions because it's not part of salvation. It's not part of enlightenment. Whereas it seems to me that in the older stories of European cultures, just as in Native Americans and lots of other indigenous cultures around the world, your relationship with and respect for the land that gave you life is absolutely intrinsic. And the idea, even if you go back to ancient Greece, Plato, for example, believed decidedly that individual souls chose to be physically incarnated. And, you know, the physical incarnation was the learning experience for that soul. Now, you don't have to adopt that kind of semi-religious belief to believe that it's necessary to have a good grounding in the land. But all I'm trying to do is say that throughout Europe, there were all of these stories where the land was, in a sense, the moral authority and the land was women. I know you talk about the sense of being rooted to the land and that if we're rooted to the land, because there's two key messages that I got from this, if we are rooted to the land as opposed to sitting in our offices making decisions on business, we know that we are part of the land and therefore we wouldn't abuse it and we wouldn't be in the state that we're in today. That's one part of your message. And the other, I thought, was that, that women were the real carers of that land much more deeper historically before men sort of shifted them aside. Yes, there was a sense that women understood balance, that women understood what it was, perhaps because at key transition points in our lives, you know, there are very physical <laughs> consequences in a way that doesn't happen so much with men's lives. So, you know, menopause, pregnancy, of course, being the two obvious ones. The physical changes, uh, the cyclicity 
of the menstrual cycle, which does for many people, is impacted by lunar cycles, yes. for example. Lots yep. of research on that. So all of this sense of women just being a little bit more attuned to the natural world, I think, is part of that. But the story that you're referring to, just very briefly, was one that I came across, and it just completely floored me. Same here when I read I it. I didn't know that we had stories like that. I knew Native Americans had stories like that. So it's a story about a set of sacred wells throughout Britain, and the wells attended by otherworldly women who come out of the wells because it's believed that all wells originate in the other world. And whenever a traveller comes by who's hungry or thirsty or in need of help, they come out of the well and they offered them food from a golden platter and a drink of beautiful, life-giving well water from golden grails. And this was how the other world served. And it was all very well until a king whose name was Amangon came along. And he took one look at a very beautiful well maiden. He took the food and the drink. He threw the cup and the plate away. And he threw the woman over the side of the well and he raped her while his men looked on. And seeing that, his men thought, oh, this is great. So they went off throughout the land, raping all of the well maidens. And not surprisingly, the maidens no longer came out of the wells. But that wasn't all that happened. The land became a wasteland. It's the original wasteland story. And the rivers dried up, the trees shriveled, and this went on for quite a long time. There were consequences in the old stories. It's just like, don't do this because bad stuff is going to happen to you. And it's a very remarkable story because it was the women that were disrespected by being raped, but the women represented, when I say the other world, in our traditions, the other world is entangled with the physical world. It's not like some transcendent kind of Mm -hmm. different place. So they disrespected the land as -hmm. well and the spiritual heart of the land in raping the women. And as a consequence of that, all life was taken away from the land and it remained a wasteland for a long period of time. So it's a remarkable story, really. And if that's not a metaphor for the mess that we're getting into today, I don't know what is. So that metaphor is the mess of the world that we're looking at today, Mm -hmm. where we have created many parts of it as a wasteland. Mm -hmm. And your goal is for us to take another route and to bring back life and through the feminine. And the feminine men, this is the two coming together because we all have a mix of both, don't we? It's rising this up so that all of us can live in harmony on the land and understand, understand what we've let go. Yeah, and I do want to be very clear that I don't think a matriarch would be very much better than a patriarch. Well, that's not true. It probably would be, but but that's not Stop what that we're now. aiming for. <laughs> uh, so the idea is just to bring back, you know, men have had a, a good run at it for a couple of thousand yeah. years. And the aim is not for women to like take over, if I can be simplistic, but just for that part of the energies that are available to us to be honoured. There's a wonderful story. Have you ever heard of Lynn Twist who goes out to the Amazon? Yes. Beautiful. Yes. And she talks about going out to the Amazon to be with the people who, you know, we'd been exploiting <laughs> and taking their land. And she said that as she walked through it with one of the indigenous people from there, he just said, stop. She said, what? And he said, stop. Can you hear them? And he said, all the souls. And actually the, the trees and the environment speaking to her, and she was like, she couldn't. She goes out again and then she hears them time after mm. time. And I suppose what we're getting back to time and time again is that we are connected to the earth. 
Indeed. And again, if you go back to the old stories, they do show us that our ancestors in these parts of the world believed that everything was in some sense ensouled. They were animists, you know, they believed that everything had a soul. Certainly, you know, I talk to crows all the time, big fan of crows. Yeah, you love a crow. I love, I love a good crow. I've got jackdaws yeah. that nest and they wake me up and they go, jackdaw, jackdaw, chatting mm. at the back door. That's what I say. But what's the message on that, Sharon? What are the jackdaws well, telling me? I have no idea. You have to go to a soothsayer for that, which I'm deciding. Decidedly not, but there are many old stories where people are looking for something and they want information, so they go to a village and they ask the village and the villagers don't know, so they send them to the next village where there's, there are some older people and the older people don't know. So what do they do? They send them to the animals because the animals always know more than people and they end up with the oldest animals and this is a strong folkloric motif, This the image of the oldest animals who know more than humans ever could because they were here before us and they have a different kind of wisdom to us that sometimes we need and that's embedded in all of these old stories that respect for a different way of being in the world for a rock for a tree for a crow whatever it might be and that's the kind of thing where we can look back and say well we had it once and it wasn't really so long ago so why can't we have that again why can't we just learn to look at a crow as if it actually has something to offer us rather than just a really annoying bird yes I want to read, I like this little excerpt, and I suppose what I'm saying to you is I wish I'd read your book before I wrote Work Like a Woman because you express it so beautifully. And you write this, what is it, this power? What is it then to be a woman? Perhaps more than anything, it's the wisdom of the physical, the sexuality and life-giving power of the female body which we must begin to reclaim. But we're fighting against a culture which has both denigrated and commodified the female body for millennia. Every day in all parts of the world, women are confronted with a myriad cultural and religious taboos about our bodies. Menstruation is a dirty secret, something to be sniggered at. We must cover our faces with veils. We must not breastfeed in public. We must conform to societal expectations of what the female body should be. And you talk about, even in 1991, the beauty myth, Naomi Wolf argued that the situation has worsened. We think we've achieved greater liberation during the past decade. That was then in the 80s. Women breached the power structure. Meanwhile, eating disorders rose exponentially. Cosmetic surgery became the fastest growing speciality. Pornography became the main media category ahead of legitimate films and records combined. So if there's any young women listening to this now, there is only one route, and that's the route that you talk about, just reclaiming this divine feminine and going back to our place. I think so. Really, part of the problem, and certainly it was true when I was growing up and when I went into corporate life, there was a man, an American man, who in 1949 wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell, a mythologist, and he invented the hero's journey, what everybody knows now, everybody's heard of it. So the hero's journey, it's taken by man. Mm -hmm. Campbell didn't believe that women should make the journey. And basically a hero hears a call to adventure. Something is lacking in the world or in himself or in his family or his friends or whatever. Something is lacking. He goes off, he hears the call to adventure, off he goes, swashbuckling, you know, kills a few dragons here and there, walks down the road of trials, is tested by this and that, and eventually finds 
whatever he is looking for, some gift to bring back to the world in order to save it. And it's very linear. It's very action-oriented. It's very individualistic. And and still is in all the cartoons that our kids are watching, by the way. Absol- absolutely. Hercules, Hollywood. I mean, really, you know, yeah. George Lucas talks about how that influenced him with Star Wars. Yeah. You know, some very entertaining movies have been made as a consequence of it. But the point is that Campbell didn't believe that women made the journey. It was only for men. Women were one of the things that the hero had to encounter, but they didn't have their own journey. So he was, you know, writing this in 1949. But women, I think, as we grew through feminism in the 60s and 70s and began to be more prominent, perhaps slightly more prominent in the corporate world and so on, were encouraged to go on a hero's journey. Women were making the male journey. Do you see? No, totally. So that whole action-oriented kind of, again, swashbuckling, individualistic stuff. And it's not our nature. The hero's journey is not for women, but that's the journey. We, we were to be like men in order to succeed. We were to do the male journey in order to succeed. And that really, in so many ways, just completely forgot about all of the things that make a woman you know, what she is, the creativity, the nurturing, the physical, the embodiment, and so on. And I think that is why a lot of women broke. You know, I I remember when I was just leaving school, I think, or maybe it was later than that, the book Having It All, you know, where a woman was supposed to have it all. Be the mother, um, Maeve Horan, I think it was. Yeah, but yeah, Shirley Conran in very much the same genre. And it was all about, you know, just accumulating everything. And women broke left, right and centre. At that time, I was at Harvey Nicks and I remember, you know, I would be interviewed, you know, because I had two kids, I was on the board, da 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 And of course, you played the part because those were the tenets of success. This is what it looked like. We're not saying that we don't want a society with men. We want the society to be balanced so that we can actually change the world and do something that's very beautiful. And in fact, save humanity. Indeed, and to allow women to live their own story, which is a different story and which is an equally, uh, possibly at this stage of the planet's crisis, a a more valuable story, actually, to bring out there and stop trying to, you know, squeeze ourselves into glass slippers that were made for somebody else. I'm going to go to the back of your book and it's called The Eco-Heroines Journey that you talk about. So you talk about the heroine's journey. We know the hero's one. Mm -hmm. And the heroine's journey is she will do it in a different way. Mm-hmm. We still want to bring back the beauty. We want to bring yeah. something back that says we've retrieved it. Right. It's a different journey. And to me, it's a journey back to a sense of connectedness to the wider world around us. So what way would the, you call it the eco-heroine's journey. Tell us what route we would take and should be taking. I called it the eco-heroine's journey and if women are as rooted because in that book I was really trying to paint a picture of a way that we could have a journey to grow more connected to our places, to feel a greater sense of belonging to the land. So the woman's journey, the heroine's journey that I was talking about there was very much about developing a sense of belonging to our places, developing a sense of relationship to the land in a way that isn't so outward-oriented, so linear, so swashbuckling, dragon-slaying, you know, let's make the dragon a member of our team and all of that kind of malarkey. So that was specifically what I was writing about in If Women Are As Rooted. But the term that I use, which encompasses more than just the heroine's journey, is the post-heroic journey. Because I think Campbell's heroic journey has had its day. I think it has done enough damage. I mean, I don't think he intended it to do damage, but it has been interpreted, you know, in a, in a very kind of individualistic, 
more, more, more uh, save the world grandiose gesture kind of a way. And to me, the post-heroic involves going back a little bit to some of the old stories that we've been talking about that tell us that we must live in balance and harmony with the world, that tell us that an individual is never enough. I mean, what fairy tale heroine ever found her way out of the dark forest without the help of, you know, mice who she feeds some of her porridge to or the old woman who has a basket of fruit or whatever. And post-heroic journeys, I think, whatever facet they might focus on, like the eco-heroine's journey and the women rooted post-heroic journeys are what we need to think about now. What are the stories that we need to live by that will serve not only us, but the planet. And that's something that the hero's journey just doesn't ask. I'm going to say to people, buy this book. If Women Rose Rooted, <laughs> no, honestly, and Haggitude, start off Women Rose Rooted and go on to Haggitude, right? But I'm just going to go to the back here because it really helped me, even when I was talking with businesses, to say, think about it in this way. And you talk about the first stage of the eco-heroine's journey, which is basically how do we save our land and save ourselves and our well-being, is to sweep aside the veil which prevents us from seeing the world as it is, to understand that what is broken and what needs to change. And this isn't just about understanding climate change and failing ecosystem. It's about acknowledging social, economical and political injustices This is about women embracing who we are, but it's also about men wanting this as well because so many men have been suppressed in this world because they're exhausted by living the way that they even shouldn't be living. Oh, absolutely. It does no good for men either. It's not just about women. It's just that I have a little bit less sympathy for men because they kind of created the problem. They did. No, 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 they did. It doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't do anyone, but men, this is about women now, Mm -hmm. and men will thank us all for it because we'll all have a better life for it. As I've talked about the end chapters of Women Rose Rooted, look at what you call the new eco-heroines journey. But what are the techniques you suggest people listening should explore to help cultivate some of these ideas with them? So I guess what I'm teaching above all is what I call the practice of cultivating the mythic imagination. That's using your imagination to see the world as alive, I guess, and as storied. You know, it's not only humans who have stories in the world. Everything else has stories too. So one of the most obvious things to really enhance your sense of connection or to develop that sense of connection and rootedness in the place that you are, whether you think you're going to be there forever or not, whether you love it or not, is to actually talk to things when you go outside. And a lot of people do that all the time. But I will walk down a road and, yes, I'll talk to a crow always. Mm. I'll talk to a tree. There's a particularly beautiful rowan tree, which is more whole than tree, which I'm very fond of because it tells me a lot about growing older down the lane. And just saying good morning to a lovely, beautiful stone. And it's kind of like you would do that for a human that you encountered for a human neighbour. But we generally don't do that for other than human beings in our neighbourhood. But if you do, then you start over time to look at the world differently. You do start to look at the world as full of other beings, for want of a better word, that can be in relationship with you. And then you don't feel so separate from it. And once you're in relationship with somebody or something, you feel a sense of a sense of responsibility, I suppose, for it and a sense of caring. And how could you possibly rape and pillage a planet that you were in that kind of relationship with? And, you know, quite often they talk back in their own way. I pick up worms. 
You know when it's rained and you see them on the pavement? I can't leave them for someone to walk over. So I, I put should, them on the... I should hope. No, no. <laughs> Good. But sometimes it takes me a long while because there's <laughs> quite a, a lot of worms. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening, and I leave you with this. Don't you dare, having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. Make it happen.